Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Forbidden Archaeology. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We've got uh, RPJ with us again this week, but uh, first, as always, is Graham. How's it going, Graham? Hey, I'm doing well, buddy. Yeah, how are you? Good, good, and uh, excited to talk to uh, RPJ again. He gets, uh, I notice we get... Uh, uh, a lot of extra interest in the episodes he's on, and he he definitely has a loyal uh, a loyal audience out there that are happy happy to hear him speak uh, and talk about these things. So, without further ado, how's it going tonight, RPJ? Hey, good evening, Battles. How's it going <laughs> this this fine night? That's good, good. Yeah, so far so good. You're you're coming in great. It seems like maybe we finally escaped these uh, these gremlins that seem to be following us around. Yes, the goddamn uh, North Carolina Hadels that sometimes <laughs> get stuck in the wires. Could be NSA even. Yeah, it could be NSA. So first, let me uh, start by congratulating the both of you for the birth of your future king and sovereign. Ah, <laughs> uh, King George. Yeah, I mean, you first had uh, in in Great Britain, they first start, had uh, the Mad George, now you, my man, maybe in the future we could have Curious George or something. <laughs> yeah, he'll be actually, a fan of Grimerica. I actually just had a rant about that uh, last episode. Uh, it hasn't released yet, but I just had a rant about that just a, a few minutes ago with Graham about how, how much media attention this King George gets, and he's, he's basically born into a life of privilege. And there's like, you know, 200,000, almost a quarter million kids a day born into absolute poverty. And, and they just came to, seem to get swept under the rug. Well, this, this king, everyone, you know, people are crying in the streets for this kid who's going to get everything he wants. Yeah, it's kind of weird to see all the hype and, and all the excitement that uh, you see in the footage in, in people in Great Britain. And I don't know how many people in your country, Canada, uh, support the... The monarchy, the, the realm. The, I don't know. Did you please tell me? I don't know either. You know, <laughs> it seems like it's low, but then, like when the the royal couple came here last year, like there was people lined up for miles to try and see him on the parade road. So it's yeah. like when you talk to people in the street, the average person doesn't care. But it seems like the the older generation is still kind of holding on to it. As a, as a really young country, I suppose that's because a lot of these people probably haven't been here for that many generations. You know what I mean? Like some of these older people might have actually been for first first generation Canadians. Interesting. I've stayed I away from the hype myself. I I really haven't followed the, this mainstream at all. So I'm a little uh, a little bit unaware at how uh, prevalent this whole story's been. I don't even like our government the way it is, let alone a monarchy. I mean, I, you guys in Canada have one of the most advanced and most efficient forms of government, guys. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Please, they... please take it from me. I mean, here in in Mexico, our system of uh, legislation is, uh, I don't know, it's a good day when they don't go and <laughs> start to jail and uh, throw things at them. 
Yeah, we do have it pretty good up here like that. We can't complain, but it is still a, a really flawed system. Like it just seems like there's so many better ways it could be done. It's not the way it was envisioned back in the day. You know what I mean? But do you how how long do you guys think that uh, something like a monarchy will last in the 21st century? It's something I I tried to ask some of my friends in uh, the Daily Grail some time ago. And well, I didn't really get uh, a definitive answer. So, well, I th I think it's already on its way down in a way, right? It's going to be just a formality, right? There's no real. Yeah, it already is just a formality. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these these uh, these people really don't have any any real power. They are like a like a figure. I not I won't say an adornment, but they are really a, like a, a traditional position. But yeah, it's having like tenure. Exactly, but having said that, I don't know. You see uh, this movie? I really liked the the King's Speech. Yeah. Did, did, did you see it? Yeah. I, I mean, you see the influence that uh, the king has on its people when they really need support, when they really need something to cling on, you know, and and that something was the figure of the monarchy, you know, to tell them that. That things are going to be okay. Yeah. I know yeah. that you see that, and you and you start to think that well, maybe the monarchy, maybe in England, the monarch, and in places like Japan, the monarchy has endured for a reason. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Somebody said that the best form of government is a good monarchy, or or a fair monarchy, or you know, that that it, that it may not be that bad. It all depends on who's in power, right? Here, I've, yeah. I've, got a, I, I've got a prediction of what's going to happen with, with our king here. What I object to is he automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... There is got... some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. There goes the UK audience. I thought we were an autonomous collective. <laughs> That's my all-time favorite movie. Is that Holy Grail? Yeah. Mm. I don't see it. I just don't see why people love that shit so much. Oh, it's because it's a parody on the whole system. It's awesome. Yeah, it's an interesting parody. What 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 creeps me out about the whole thing, RPJ, is uh, is how it just used as a distraction for media all over the world, right? Like no matter what's going on, all of a sudden this becomes the biggest story. Yeah, but with very little effort. I mean, people. I don't know. Maybe people need some distraction, something to try to get their head out of their. Uh, daily troubles and all the, the worries and anxieties brought up by uh, modern life. I don't know. You think it's more the people then than, than, the, uh, than the system propagating I this? I mean, I think it's... Uh, I could see how it could be. Half and half. I, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's like a father figure on a civilizational level. Yeah, and when these two kids uh, got married, and it was the the wedding of the century, and there were people there uh, 
on their own accord. Nobody was forcing them to spend a whole week camping just to get a glimpse for 10 seconds of the of their caravan or whatever, just on their way to the cathedral when they when the ceremony was celebrated. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're only a couple generations away from it, in Canada at least, from us separating ourselves from it. But why haven't you already done so? Well, technically, I think we already have. Like, technically, we severed ties with the, with the UK. I, I can't remember what year it was, but technically, we're not a part of, the, part of it anymore. But there is still seem to be that, like, you know, the, buddy pass. The Commonwealth and all that. Yeah, exactly. So other other than that, what's uh, what's new? What's new? Well, speaking about other a country that is part of the English Commonwealth, let's talk about India. And let's talk about uh, the series of UFO sightings that have been uh, they've been uh, being reported all across the Himalayan border, you know, the border with well, what is now technically China. Since last year, uh, we've, been, we've been hearing about uh, hundreds of, of sightings that the border patrols have been uh, have had uh, uh, while watching these uh, very important and very, I don't know, uh, uh, secure, uh, very uh, tight, heightened place. And the I remember that when we started started discussing these sightings, that uh, some people proposed that they were nothing but ch- ch- the traditional Chinese lanterns that they were I don't know being uh, released uh, during some religious ceremony or whatever. And you know the skeptics they they went with that explanation, and suddenly I don't know the story uh, went cold. Yeah, but yeah. It's been a few this, months now, right? Yeah, haven't those uh, haven't those UFOs actually uh, caused some like uh, some some problems before, like some military problems that each side thought it was the other side shit? Yeah, well, uh, the Indian government, the Indian military, was suspecting that the behind these UFO sightings, uh, it was. Uh, Chinese technology. There maybe it was a new kind of uh, Chinese drone that was trying to spy on them uh, through the border. And they actually made some inquiries, so some formal inquiries with the Chinese government to try to see, ask them, okay, is this, are these lights we see on the sky coming from you? And apparently the Chinese denied any kind of involvement or responsibility on the matter. And because of that, uh, the the Indian government had to try to find an alternative explanation. So they called some astronomers to go to the Ladakh region, to the this uh, Himalayan border, to try to find uh, what what is behind this uh, yellow light. And that's what was reported by the Telegraph this week. But now I also found uh, a second article coming from the Indian Telegraph, 
which apparently states that uh, the astronomers, indeed two astronomers, went to the border, and the conclusion was that the Indian Army was mistaking uh, that the UFOs were nothing but the planet Jupiter and Venus. Oh, I don't know. Fucking apparently, Venus. <laughs> fucking Venus, Venus again. again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that just, I don't know, that doesn't fly with me. I don't know. Apparently, they went and uh, they used a theodolite to try to find uh, the source behind these these lights. Because originally, uh, the article said that the, the lights only stay there for uh, in the air for 13, 18 minutes. But now, uh, apparently, was the... the the story was changed, and now they were telling that the, the, the UFOs were being seen uh, in the order of three hours, that they were raised from the horizon and stayed up in the air until they disappeared. And the, con- the conclusion of these two astronomers was that the, the, they were uh, these two celestial bodies. So, I don't know. I don't know if this is some kind of this information campaign. This is just trying to find the easiest explanation for something that they cannot uh, explain. It seems it seems hard to believe you would go to the Chinese government first because of something so simple as it being you know planets. Yeah, something so innocuous. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. what are are you telling me that the soldiers? stationed on the on this on this border were just uh, beginning their commission there so they really didn't know <laughs> it was the first time they saw up into the sky and say oh what is that what is, is that light planet? overhead it's flashing yeah see, and like jupiter in it. you don't even see jupiter until it's like dark yeah were we talking about jupiter and venus yeah, like Venus, you can see in like the dusk, right? Yeah. Like what's well, still bright. I could see how people could fuck that up. Nah, once it's still, not even know. really. No, I know, but you know what I mean. I can see how people who don't ever really see the stars and shit in the city might go out and see Venus, but but Jupiter, I don't know. It just looks like a star to me. So, what do you think it was truly, RPJ? American drones? I did. I really don't have an explanation for it right now. I mean, I'm seeing right now a, the webpage of our friends at Open Minds. Yeah. Who were also discussing this uh, news. Yeah, yeah. They, they have the, the road UFOs along India's border remain a mystery, and they included a little a image, uh, one of a photograph of one of these objects, and you can see uh, a really uh, a small uh, yellowish light on a completely dark background. And what I would like to know is uh, if the sightings reported any kind of uh, strange uh, movements of these lights. I mean, if the the lights, okay, they rose from the horizon, stayed, uh, hovered there uh, up in the sky for, I don't know, one, two, three hours or whatever, and then... uh, if the, if the soldiers might have perhaps uh, uh, seen these lights moving from left to right, if, 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 if there is some kind of report like that, then we, we should really discount the possibility that it was a, a planet, that we have to look for an alternative explanation. Obama yeah. been droning. Yeah, but why there? I mean, why risk 
uh, uh, war with the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about confrontation with two nuclear powers, man. India has nuclear weapons too. China has nuclear weapons. You really don't want to start shit there. I think actually Canada might have something to do with that. With what? With, with India what? having nukes. I can't remember where oh. I heard that the other oh. day, but something to do with Pakistan for sure, I think. Yeah, probably, but yeah. you know. Um I, I don't know. Who knows what the I, Americans are, are watching worldwide now, right? I mean, there are also probably are reasons why they want to keep a closer eye on those two countries, right? But also if these uh, lights are really staying up in the air uh, for so long, I yeah. mean, yeah. then the story of the drone starts to have holes because I know I know that uh, some UFO researchers are trying very hard to to say that uh, many people are now mistaking uh, either military or commercial drones for UFOs. Yeah, yeah. No, even our friend Mike Hanks is uh, is now writing about that. But the problem I see with uh, these explanations is that, uh, take for example, the commercial, uh, what we call the quadcopter, you know, the, 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 the machine with, with four rotors, yeah. you know, which allow them to hover and to move, they have very precise control. But, uh, what I'm trying to find out is how long can these uh, commercial drones stay in the air? And yeah. so far, I don't. I don't think it's too long. I think it's at me at maximum uh, uh, between twenty to thirty minutes stops. So if you're telling me, okay, that you that the people are seeing lights that are, that are staying up in the air for uh, more than two hours, then what are these fucking things? Uh, nuclear power? What yeah. Chinese lanterns? <laughs> oh. yeah. No, well, then Swamp gas. Have... It reminds me of that movie where they're in the. Uh, it was that military movie. Um, they're in the like Afghanistan or something like that, and they're looking up in the sky, and you can see the bright light in the daylight of a drone. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of reminds me of that. The, do you know a guy named Norio Hayakawa? Yeah. Well, I don't well, know him personally, but I've heard. Uh, of him. Yeah, who's that? Yeah. Norio Hayakawa uh, became involved in the UFO business around the time when uh, the Bob Lazar story broke. Mm-hmm. You know, when George, George Knapp uncovered uh, this guy, Bob Lazar, who claimed 80s. to have... Now it's Area 51, right? Yeah. Exactly, in the 89, I think, when yeah. he claimed to have worked in a, in a section of Area 51 called S4. When he also claimed to have with observed a, a metallic uh, flying saucer, and he was told that the flying saucer uh, had, was uh, not of this earth, that it was of alien origin, and mm. they were trying to reverse engineer it to try to to see how it worked, try to uh, make tests with it, and whatever, you know. And uh, for a time, Bob Lazar was, uh, I don't know, the most the, fa- the most famous uh, name behind the UFO the, the UFO scene. But then some people started to question his story and tell him that uh, this guy uh, uh, he wasn't who he claimed to be. For for starters, he claimed to have a, 
uh, uh, degrees from Caltech, I think, and MIT. And it was Stanton Friedman who tried to in investigate on, on, on it. And he found out that uh, these two uh, educational institutions uh, didn't have any records on him. But on the other hand, George Knapp uh, made some inquiries with people who were indeed working in Area 51. And he tried to test uh, Bob Lazar with questions like, okay, in Area 51, where is the mess hall located and how do you pay for your food and all that stuff? And according to the people uh, who uh, George Knapp talked to, the Bob Lazar gave the right answers. Mm -hmm. So I think we, there is reason to believe that the guy, maybe he uh, faked his degrees in order to get a job. He wouldn't be the first, the first, the first person to do that. But the, he, in, he did, uh, became involved in some capacity in work, in some research made in Area 51. And he, he also worked in some labs too, right? There was some stories about him working uh, in, in some, Los, Alamos. Los Alamos. Yeah, yeah exactly. Didn't he uh, say someone tried to kill him too? Got yeah, his tire said, shot yeah, out or some that, shit? Yeah. He, became, uh, 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 he, he became afraid of his life. And that's why, he, according to him, he went public with the story. You know, to try to attain a high profile. Yeah. So if they killed him, they would... That, uh, supposedly will only uh, confirm his story yeah so before i before i forget rpj i just i, I wanted to bring this up while i while i while i'm thinking about it um mm -hmm. we had a tweet this week uh for a question for you from uh, one of our biggest fans and, and a big fan of yours uh jared drake from new zealand oh so uh, he tweeted, he wanted to know, well, first of all, he said uh, that he knows is your, your voice doppelganger. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, uh, got a, he's got a mate that's Chilean, I guess, and he said every detail of your two voices is identical. Huh. Wow. So, so Jared, a... you should send us a soundbite of that, yeah, and uh, we'll do our own comparison. Yeah, get him, to, get him to say some of the same words like uh, UFOs and conspiracy and, you know. That is interesting because uh, the Chilean accent is very, very distinctive. They have a, a, a very, a, I don't know, uh, a very distinctive quality. And I personally think that I don't inflect my voice uh, the way uh, ch ch Chilean, ch Chilean people do. Chilean New Zealand cross. I wonder how that sounds. Tell them to say yellow. <laughs> Mellow yellow? No, jello. See if it comes out like jello. Like a jello sighting? Like a jello light. Jello light. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, anyway, let's get to Jared's questions here. So he says, uh, RPJ, why do you think there's such a difference in acceptance of paranormal, Fortiana, UFO, yada, 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 between uh, South American culture and uh, the Western culture? Hmm. That is a very, very good question. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with uh, our Native American background and the fact that the, the all the South American countries were conquered by either Spain or Portugal, I, uh, very Catholic, very Catholic countries, unlike 
Canada and the United States who were uh, colonized by the United Kingdom and France. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Mexico is populated by the Spanish. Exactly. And in Mexico, you have this uh, clashing of two uh, cultures, the Catholic uh, Spain and the, uh, I don't know how to call it. Uh, Didn't the Spanish pretty much take over South America too, though? Well, most of it, you know, Brazil was uh, uh, colonized by Portugal. But the rest of it was uh, colonized by Spain. And that's why for a whole century, Spain was the most powerful nation in the world. I mean, King Charles V, uh, it was known, uh, it was uh, told uh, back in those days that uh, his empire uh, the sun never set on his empire. It crossed, uh, uh, spanned from uh, Asia and, and, and a, a big part of Europe to the whole of the so-called, back, back in those days, the new world. And so much gold. Yeah, but the problem is, ironically, that all that gold ended up uh, destroying the Spanish empire because it spoiled them. It spoiled them. It, it they became too dependent on it, and the arrival of so much gold uh, developed a lot of corruption and a lot of uh, how do you call it? laziness? I mean, yeah. What, hey, uh, do you yeah. know, lest we forget, eh? Doesn't that sound uh, eerily familiar to to something that's going on today? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the moment uh, um, an empire or, or a nation becomes too complacent, that's the moment that it becomes stagnant and that, that's the moment that it, it starts to decay. But, I don't know, getting back to Jerry's question, which I'm still trying to, to figure out, I think that in, in all these nations, there was, a, a, I don't know, a given acceptance that uh, there were things uh, beyond uh, the reach of uh, of our current knowledge, you know, things uh, beyond our control, like I don't know, the forces of nature that were explained as the as the doing of the gods, and then when when the Spaniards came, the gods were only switched uh, to Catholic saints. But people uh, here in these lands, uh, they pretty much kept their 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 rituals and their traditions. So. They kept, uh, instead of uh, uh, putting offerings of, I don't know, pools and drinks to their, to their, uh, to their uh, uh, Mesoamerican gods, now they were putting the same offerings to, the, to some saint or uh, like, I don't know, St. Saint Peter or St. Judas or whatever, but it, it was basic, basically the same ritual. You see the same uh, in in countries like Brazil, where you also have the influence of the African slaves that came that uh, that were brought to work on the plantations, but uh, the the slaves they never really converted to Christianity. They kept their uh, the African traditions, their, their African uh, uh, religion, 
their beliefs in in black magic and voodoo and all that and that's why you see in and in brazil you see that you think of brazil as a as a catholic nation but uh, i think that santeria you know the belief in saying in in gods and all that to which you have to make rituals and offerings and sacrifice it's even more more prevalent than catholicism something similar has happens in um, in cuba when there is there is also a, a very very large uh, portion of the population that is of african descent and let's not even go to uh, places like haiti where the I mean, voodoo is uh, the, the main religion so you think so so you think that religion has a, a lot to do with with ufo belief and things like that maybe in a way if you believe in supernatural things, yeah, yeah. then believing in things that are are not explainable by our current science is not such a big of a leap. You yeah, know? I suppose because well, like most of a lot of North America claims to be, you know, some sort of devout religion, they are still like so desensitized to shit from TV and everything else that that. It maybe you know they they just uh, wouldn't even notice it if, if it was there. Yeah, I think that here in in Latin America we still keep some kind of sense, of, uh, capacity of wonder, a sense of, uh, of uh, the magic of the world. You know, that we kind of take for granted that uh, nature is uh, is magical in a way. That's the uh, that's the Indian in you. Yeah, exactly. You know, and here in Latin America, we have the the, the combination of, uh, of of these two uh, ways of look at the world. You know, in the United States, and I suppose that in Canada as well, uh, the integration of these two cultures was not as homogeneous as it was performed in, in Latin America. I mean, the, the, the European colonists made sure that they never mingled, they never really mixed with the nature of the, the native populations. They separated. You, they, in and, Canada, actually, uh, it seems like uh, the French, the French seem to take a real liking to the to the natives, for lack of a better term. Um, we've actually got like a whole little subculture of uh, native Canadians that are called Métis, and they're kind of of French and and native descent, and they actually get uh, they are actually get uh, treaty rights to some extent as well. So yeah, that was a great question by Jared, though, and it makes me uh, wonder if it's more about the uh, academic and scientific and technological advancement of uh, North America. I also think that maybe it's the fact that. Uh... The United States is uh, undeniably the the most powerful nation in the world, even today. You know, even even with all their economic strife and all problems they have uh, now in the in the Middle East, they're still really America is still the leader of the world. And being the leader of the world, to think that there is. Some, agency of some power that it's beyond their control that can fly 
what uh, seemingly are superiorly technological craft on the on their sky impunity and they can do nothing about it maybe that is why they're adamant in rejecting the reality of the ufo phenomenon yeah. whereas here in latin america i mean we already know we are the underdog we already know we are a, a third world nation so to think that there is a there is someone who is even stronger than the gringos. Maybe that's why we like the UFO so much. <laughs> Speaking of South America, we had uh, Nick Redford on last episode, and he said his favorite uh, his favorite Fortiana character was uh, the Chupacabra. Chupacabra, ch- yeah. So I figured while we had you on, we might as well ask you, what, what's your favorite uh, cryptid? Well, it's definitely not the Chupacabra. I hate the son of a bitch. <laughs> And I, I'm going. I'm going to write about it uh, someday. But I, I can, I could tell you now that one of the reasons I don't like the chupacabras is because in the 1990s, when we started to hear all the stories of uh, the chupacabra sightings in Puerto Rico, then suddenly the we have the the chupacabras uh, jumping to our country, and we started having reports of a of a slaughtered cattle and goats and chickens and uh, and sheep here in Mexico back in the 1990s 95 96 and it was very strange to see in in the may in the major uh, news channels in around the uh, eight o'clock nine o'clock news uh, the, the hour of the biggest ratings we here uh Jacobo Sabludowski, which is like who, who was like it still is like our Walter Cronkite you know and to see someone like him discuss sightings of this uh, strange bat-like creature because here in Mexico the chupacabra was not this kind of uh, bipedal and these little arms and the big red eyes that they were being initial reports in Puerto Rico. Here in Mexico, it can, you, you, we always, you always see that in the Chupacabras count. The, the creature is always morphing. And here in Mexico, it became something like a, like a black kangaroo at first, and then something like a, people were reporting on something like a big bat. Hmm. But the, it was something of a, 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 a paranoia because uh, in, in some small towns that were fearing that this something was killing their animals and obviously they were threatening their livelihood and the government was really not making anything to remedy it and because of that the people told on themselves to find a solution and the, some people were gonna raid to caves when they where they thought that the these malignant beasts these uh, caves were actually next to the of of uh, the bats here in Mexico, and they uh, since they satisfied with killing all the bats, but the problem with that is that the bat is the animal in charge of pollinating the blue agave plant. Mexico blue agave plant is from which uh, the tequila uh, beverage is uh, extracted and distilled. So, because of the... Oh, we're losing you. 
I think what you're trying to say is you're pissed off at the chupacabra because your tequila prices went up. Can you still hear me? <laughs> oh, we got you back there now. Okay. So someone doesn't want to tell uh, to me to tell the chupacabra story. So because of this <laughs> problem with the bats that were killed, the tequila production in Mexico plummeted. <laughs> and that's why... I remember that when the prices went up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like eight fifty a shot. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. You you really don't find uh, any any bottles here in Mexico. So the chupacabra fucked up your guys' tequila. Yeah, and I also suspect that's one of the things I want to write about that <laughs> that the government used the story of the chupacabras as a smoke screen screen campaign in order to divert the attention of the public uh, away from the the all the turmoil that was in, in on that moment on, in history so um you were going to mention something about uh, norio hayakawa and i think you were going to relate that to the drone sightings in other parts of the world right so Norio Hayakawa started uh, a liver no, back in those days, but I think that as time progressed, he he convinced himself that all the stuff about Area 51 was nothing but uh, public disinformation to hide away uh, secret tests. What or what was in those days? Uh, uh, prototype drones and secret aircraft. So Norikawa, uh, back in those days, the, he took a crew of uh, Japanese uh, TV producers to Area 51. In fact, yeah, they were kind of detained by, by the security of the base, but they managed to a very strange light hovering and moving around above the, the, the Area 51, the Groom Lake uh, Desert Range. And back in those days, people thought, okay, that that maybe is some of the flying saucers that Bob Lazar was talking about. But now he thinks that it, it wasn't a flying saucer or, a, or even a stealth aircraft. Maybe he thinks that it was some kind of on and drone like mm. the ones we we now see today. Yeah. So it's it's an it's a, it's an interesting theory. You also have someone like a, a Greg Valdez back in the early eighties. He became involved with uh, someone you probably have heard about, uh, Paul Benowitz. Mm -hmm. Paul Benowitz was the man who, because of him, we now talk. Uh, there are people talking about underground alien bases in Dawson, yeah. exactly. And if you've read book by Greg Bishop, this book, he makes a point that all these stories of alien bases was nothing but disinformation fed onto Paul Benowitz in order to distract him away from uh, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, where uh, he was, uh, he, his, his, his home was pretty close to the to, to this Air Force base because he actually make a business with the base. But anyway, the idea is that uh, somehow all these ideas, all these tales of 
an underground basis and, and secret genetic uh, experiments and all the cattle mutilation was somehow all connected. And Greg Valdez has now published a book uh, with the, all the research that his late father uh, made. And sorry, the conclusion is that there was nothing really extraterrestrial or about all these uh, uh, accounts of cattle mutilation that it was all done by the government. Black those don't want us to talk about cattle mutilation stories. I know. It seems, it like, seems it's like, a like it's a subject. topic related here. Yeah, yeah. If you talk about nonsense, then you, you don't have any problems. You start to talk about interesting <laughs> shit. And they shut us down. Man. Yeah, now you sound good again. Okay, let's let's try this again here. So what else do you got for us? Maybe we should change the subject. Yeah. Okay, let's change the subject. Let's change the subject to the fact that maybe if we consider the fact that some UFOs are of extraterrestrial origin, that that might be evidence of that the extraterrestrial intelligence are have reached a state of uh, beyond our current here in Earth, on Earth biological state. And the reason I say this is because uh, a British uh, physicist by the name of Paul Davis, who is is, is rather rather uh, popular with the UFO crowd, with the paranormal crowd, because he's he's very very open-minded individual. He's very liberal with his his ideas about uh, uh, the existence of extraterrestrials and all that. He recently stated that. In the event that we sometime, someday encounter uh, an extraterrestrial intelligence, it is overwhelmingly likely that this intelligence will be post-biological. He said, uh, I think it's very likely, in fact inevitable, that biological intelligence is only a transitory phenomenon, a fleeting phase in the evolution of the universe, like Davis writes in the eerie silence. If we ever encounter extraterrestrial intelligence, I believe it is overwhelmingly likely to be post-biological in nature. And that's that's very interesting because I've always uh, speculated, I've wondered about whether uh, the UFOs, the flying saucers uh, people see in the sky, uh, we always assume that 
the, the these are manned craft, you know, that there are some gray alien piloting that shit. But well, maybe what if these these are somehow living intelligent machines? Yeah, or even not if even if not living, I think there's a, a distinct possibility that they could be some sort of a a probe or something because that's exactly what humans would do. And you know, I, I'm I'm kind of one that that goes down to the the road that humans and other life in the universe may not be that far off from each other. Like you know how people used to say complain about Star Trek how all the aliens looked uh, like humans except with fucked up foreheads and shit, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. that might not be so far off because, I mean, if humans are a carbon-based life form in a universe that, that is favorable to carbon, as far as we can tell, it, it makes sense that most life might be carbon-based and that or at least a, a big chunk of it might be carbon-based. And if uh, humans evolved in carbon-based uh, conditions, then it would make sense that life on other planets could follow the same route. Yeah, I mean, many people in the... I think we talked about it the first time we had a chat that how in the 1950s, uh, scientists speculated that uh, our bipedal uh, framework, of our bipedal bodies are kind of very, very ideal, the ideal form for an intelligent species because mm -hmm. we have uh, two, uh, two hands that have the capacity to grab the grab objects to have very delicate work, and we have our uh, the, the eyes that are placed very high in our in, in our in, in our bodies to have you know a, a broader scope of the of the landscape. We we have the two eyes separated in a way to have allow us endow us with a stereoscopic vision. And, and all that, you know, and, and we also have our brains that are uh, situated very close to our eyes in order to that the, 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 the information that is uh, carried by our, by our eyes don't take a lot, a, long, a lot of time reaching our brains so that, you know, you, you see a danger, a fucking saber-toothed tiger coming our, our way. It, it, the message won't take a long time to to reach our brains and say, "Oh, we better run now." <laughs> but the problem with all uh, with all these ideas is that uh, inevitably, uh, biological bodies are are very frail, and that's the problem we have with our current uh, uh, plans for space colonization and space exploration. You know, we're talking about how how to safely take. Uh, a crew of astronauts to Mars and retrieve them to Earth, and how to protect them from all the cosmic radiation when there's uh, spent time outside the capsule. You know? so the, the, and it's such a, an, overwhelming, an overwhelming task because since we are carbon-based carbon -based life forms, we are frail, we are very susceptible to all the, the dangers and risks that uh, exist in outer space. And so that's why all these people, these transhumanists are, are saying that we better uh, try to translate or uh, to upload our consciousness to some robot machine so we can go and explore the universe. And that, that's- Or to the Google farm in fucking Idaho. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's all well and good, but I think that's not going... Uh, that's not seen far enough, because I think that to say that we might encounter uh, post-biological extraterrestrials, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, cybernetic machines, you, you know? What if, what if ETs have managed to go beyond the boundaries of, of ordinary matter? How... What if they are beings of pure consciousness, of beings of pure energy, mm-hmm. pure light? Exactly, you know, like like the fuck off the, with the light. The, <laughs> the firstborn that uh, the, that Arthur C. Clarke proposed in in his novels, two thousand two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, and two thousand two two thousand ten. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I think that. Uh... These guys, like the theoretical physicists, sometimes they just speculate a little too much about stuff that, uh, you know, you don't know about, right? Like, who knows what, uh, if I was a part of an ET civilization, I may still want to visit Earth in my human form or my biological form. Okay, but what if you are uh, an extraterrestrial intelligence that can somehow migrate your consciousness and take possession of a human body already here in, on Earth, you know? Yeah, well, that would be even easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like some kind of a mid-space avatar in some real-life video game. You know, you take control of that motherfucker walking down the street, and then you go and do whatever you want with that body. I'm, I'm still trying to catch up here. <laughs> <laughs> that shit got out of hand real quick. <laughs> and that actually was part of uh, that has already been portrayed in the movies with Johnny Depp. I think the it was in this Johnny film. Mnemonic. Jo- no, no, no. The astronaut's wife, I think, with uh, Charlize Theron was. Uh, play, oh played the yeah, role of- yeah. I started that. I I fell asleep. My wife. That's like a half sappy love story. I think, right? Yeah, I I didn't watch it, but I think that was the idea that. Johnny Depp is an astronaut that somehow uh, an, an alien intelligence uh, infects his body somehow and takes possession of him. So, oh yeah, that one. I'm thinking of the time traveler's wife. No, yeah, yeah, no, that wasn't with Johnny Depp. That was with the other guy, uh, Eric Bana. Did you ever see uh, the astronaut farmer? No, I don't think I did. With uh, what's his name, Bad Santa dude. Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> okay. He, he makes like a rocket ship in his fucking barn and then does an orbit around the earth. Oh, that sounds that fun. Re- reminds me of these, the, the, the story of this guy. I think his name was Carl Otis. This guy that managed to convince a lot of people that he was building a flying saucer in his barn. So he needed money and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of people gave, gave him gave him money hmm. and but in the end of course he didn't manage to produce a flying saucer but it was a scam to... like mars one <laughs> <laughs> how's your plans to go to mars uh, graham yeah it's good good yeah we're gonna do the videotape uh, this weekend i hope oh, exactly we should do a a, a monthly update with yeah the... yeah we could call it Grimarsica. <laughs> Gramarica. Gramarsica. Grimarsica. 
Hopefully he gets to go and uh, we get exclusive rights, right, right, Graham? Yeah, that'll be part of the... You'll have to step in as co-host then in his absence because I don't think we'll, he'll be able to do it on a regular basis anymore. No, uh, because even if we could do it on a regular basis because of the distance uh, between Earth and Mars, every time we ask a question, it will be, well, I don't know, maybe it will be just like to, tonight with Skype, you know, every time we, we say something, something. <laughs> yeah. six minutes happen until we regain connection. So maybe, maybe, maybe I can just upload my consciousness to, uh, you know, a, a mechanical probe and go there. Yeah, that would be cool. And then uh, you still end up dying on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Except this time it just takes longer. <laughs> so what else you got? Uh, I finally watched After news? Earth today. Or last night I finally watched After Earth. I didn't like it. You didn't like it? Why? I don't know. It just seemed kind of empty, hollow. Like, I don't know. It just like, I don't know. It just, I expected more. From Will Smith, I've come to expect a, lo a lot more. You expect uh, that at some point we will be able to punch a fucking alien and say, Welcome to Earth! Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. The reason why I didn't feel too inclined to go see it, it was because uh, the artwork or the aesthetics of the movie reminded me too much of David Lynch's Dune. Huh. Which I happen to like. I mean, I I know a lot of people don't like that movie. It's something of a cult movie. I happen to like them that uh, the movie, and uh, I felt the moment I I saw Will Smith sound with this kind of uh, black rubber suit. They said, "Wait a minute, that's like a Fremen steel suit. What hmm. the fuck?" Hmm. And then I started to read about the movie, and it kind of was slightly inspired by. The Frank Herbert's mythology of how the human race will revel against against the, the the building of intelligent machines. So then they will have this what they call the Butlerian Jihad, and they will ban the creation. Thou, thou shall not build a, a machine at the, uh, at the image of man or something like that. Sounds familiar. Yeah. So, uh, in a scale of one to ten, how how much would you give uh, After Earth? Uh, five. Okay. So, barely, barely worth it. Yeah. Well, I got uh, it. It. Uh, I don't really know how to say this legally, but uh, I, it didn't <laughs> cost me a lot. Okay. <laughs> I like. Uh, I, I'll give it a seven or an eight. I like the part about having to uh, become real present and get rid of your fear. You know, mm. fear like, is the mind killer. Yeah, the fear part. I like that. It, I did like that one quote. I did like his little quote about fear not being real. Was kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, well, fear, fear is the mind killer. That that's that's something. All something else from from Han, Frank Herbert's Dune. Funny, did you guys? Did you guys uh, go to see a Pacific Rim? I did, yeah. Did you like it? I did. Better. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen yeah. any of uh, Robbie Graham's five movies, five UFO movies you've never seen? No, none of those. I mean, they never were re even released in Mexico. So I don't I, know if you were able to 
find it on the net. Yeah, I was able to find a few of them on OneChannel.tv, but I couldn't get more than ten minutes in. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah, they were they were they were bad. They were bad. Hmm. From well, I don't know. I suppose we're spoiled. Like uh, us here in North America, yourself included, are kind of spoiled, I think, compared to the rest of maybe the world or a lot of the world for our our movie, movie, I don't know what the word is, movie making. (laughs) Sure, or quality. Yeah. Okay. Why? If you don't, if you make a movie about aliens and you don't see the. $500,000 $500,000 special effects of a flying saucer, it's not worth it? Well, no, it's not just that. It, it was a lot of bad acting. That's, that's something that really bugs me. Mm. Okay. Maybe it was just acting that you're not used to. Like if you watch an old movie, you kind of think it's bad Yeah, acting. I notice that now. Like if I watch a movie that I used to think was cool yeah, 20 yeah. years ago, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What the fuck was where, I thinking? Where do you watch movies now, uh, RPJ? Like, how do you get your your dose of movies? Do you do it online, or do you have movie stores you go to to rent? Well, we still have Blockbuster here in Mexico, believe it or not. Hmm. Yeah, um, they just finished shutting down all the locations here in Calgary. Yeah, they also uh, liquidated all the small video clubs here in Mexico as well. So you guys probably aren't too far away from your own Netflix or something like that. Like, can you get that shit down there? Yeah, we have we have Netflix here in Mexico too. Now, I I actually uh, have Netflix and I watch it with uh, through my Xbox console. But the problem with uh, Mexican Netflix is that the catalog is not as varied as the American version. Yeah, so that's if, like ours too. Unless you do some crazy IP shit, you can. You, I think you can learn how on YouTube. Mm. Well, that's what I find challenging right now is uh, is where to get your movies. Like, I, I there's not uh, iTunes doesn't have a lot of them for rent. Netflix doesn't have a lot of them. You kind of have to go to the the site, in my opinion, on some of them, or maybe go to this one channel dot com that Darren's talking about. We're not promoting that, that shit. For the, for uh, the no. record, for America does not promote the piracy no, yeah. of movies. Oh, is that uh, yeah. one channel is? Oh, jeez, yeah. See, I mean, I don't. I don't Disclaimer: Grimerica does not promote the piracy of movies. Although, let me tell you that I was trying to find a way to see the latest uh, program, Joe Rogan's uh, "Questions Everything." Yeah, yeah. I just watched was, it last night. Well, I tried to find a way to watch it and. Goddamn fucking geo-blocking. I know with sci-fi, with Amazon, someone tweeted, oh, you can, if, even if you don't have cable, you can uh, watch it through Amazon. And I say, oh, right, thanks. But I try to, and they say, no, this content is not available on your country. You oh, que la chingada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, after we're done recording, I could probably give you a link. You can find it. No, there's no need to. <clears throat> Yeah, I. So did you see it then? No, not not. Uh, I just watched the first five ten minutes of it. Yeah, it was okay. I guess I was expecting more. Okay, I think that a lot of people too were expecting more, but uh, 
of the few minutes that I managed to watch, I did observe that uh, Joe didn't manage to avoid the lame, oh my God, what was that? Using night vision. Exactly. And I say, oh my God, really, Joe, really? Did you have to go with the, what was that? Like, I'm pretty sure he's even talked about that shit, how lame it is, you know what I mean? Uh, I hope so. Hmm. Um, I tried to find, uh, like, just a movie, for example, like Iron Sky, you know, that one about the uh, Mm. Germans in the base of the moon? And I can't, I can't, uh, can't, iTunes doesn't have it, I can't find it on Netflix, so that's the type of movie I'm talking about, where one that kind of didn't do so good in Hollywood, but I want to see it, now... You know, how do I get access to it? Because I don't yeah. have I don't have a cable on a TV, right? I could go on maybe if I had a digital cable, I could probably get it through like Shaw. No, I I doubt it. You don't think so? Do you, that that li- those libraries are limited too. Like I feel like they're almost limiting our access to movies now too, in a way. Yeah, like you go to the movies uh, in in any major city, and instead of finding. Uh, all these small, obscure indie movies, you only see uh, multiplex, uh, three three theaters uh, uh, having the same, uh, I don't know, Monsters University or Pacific Ring or Man of Steel. Yeah, Yeah, and now we've lost the libraries of our little, you know, the the video store down the street. Everything's online, and who knows? We've already seen the reach that the the government and other entities have into the, the Internet. Who knows who's controlling the stream of what you'll even be able to find. And yeah. the only way that you can find these movies, I mean, is is uh, illegally. And that's, you know, I, I, that doesn't account for all, all the piracy, but I, I'm sure it accounts for some of it. Yeah, like, uh, I haven't watched this movie that many people recommended. It's uh, Moon with Sam Brockwell. I really, really wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was never released here in Mexico. It was never released uh, on DVD. Uh, I think that until very recently it was released on cable, but I, I haven't been able to see it because I don't watch uh, much TV anymore. So uh, I tried to find it on Netflix and there was it wasn't there. So what am I supposed to do now? Mm-hmm. Good. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one having that problem. No, no. I think it's a very it's a global problem. And yeah. my friends uh, in Australia, uh, Greg, Rick. Our friends Aaron and them they also suffered the same problem. And I knew when when we when these big movie stores started shutting down, I kind of knew I was like, you know what, we're not ready. The infrastructure is not ready to replace the you know the hard movie stores. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Were you were you talking about Moon? Um, that uh, the Sam Rockwell one is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you can see I'm in iTunes right now. You can buy it for twenty dollars, but you can't rent it. I'm like, what the fuck? Twenty dollars is too yeah. much. Like, come on! I just want to rent the fucking movie. Yeah, I mean, twenty bucks on you... iTunes. Come on, no. just buy that yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna buy w- every movie, and I don't even know if it's good or not. Let me watch it online for five dollars, and that will yeah. be acceptable. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. Give me an extensive online library of movies I can pay. I don't mind paying a few bucks to rent one. Yeah. Hmm. It shouldn't even be a few bucks. It should be fucking 50 cents. These <laughs> these guys are all fucking unbelievably rich. Is that really how it needs to be? Taking more money from their fans? I don't have a problem with paying 5 $10 to help some small indie filmmaker. 
you know. No, not an indie to... film. No, that, I guess that's a different than a, a a blockbuster type thing. Yeah, I mean, those should be we, fifty cents. I mean, Pacific Rim. How I I I don't even know how much it cost. Like one hundred and eighty million dollars, right? Something like that. I mean, humongous. And Guillermo del Toro, when he started his career, he had to. Uh, uh, he had to uh, invest all the money he had, all he owned, to make his first movie. He had to ha- have a a, a mortgage, mortgage mortgage on his on his house and on his family business to finance uh, the, his first movie, Chronos. I don't know if you guys had ever watched it. I highly recommend it. The first time he uh, worked with. Ron Perlman. I haven't seen it. I've heard oh, it's a, I'll have to look for it's it. It's a real, it's a really cool movie. It's a really cool story about uh, uh, an old antiquarian who finds some very strange device that somehow grants a extended life, and he eventually becomes a vampire. Hmm. Really, really cool, and you. You see the movie and you start to see many of the themes that will that eventually uh, became repeated in all his movies because he 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 can't really say I know I only know how to make one movie and I make it over and over again and I don't have a problem with that I don't have a problem <laughs> with with the the personal style of uh, of an artist of an, uh, as a filmmaker. Hmm. So yeah, I liked uh, I liked the. Uh... Pacific Rim. I like the part where they had to drift their minds together and actually stay present and stay yeah, in the that, moment. That whole meditative aspect of not like going into your past or worrying about the future. It's like you got to be like right here, right now in the battle. In the now. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it too. I think it was a, a nice homage to the Japanese uh, anime Evangelion. Yeah. I don't know if you guys watch it. I, I love that fucking cartoon. I'll have to check that out too. What's it called? Evangelion. That's like Neo- what, one of those like cartoon like ch- animation. Yeah, a Japanese anime. <laughs> and Guillermo del Toro is a huge fan of Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> you can see a lot of the, uh, of Miyazaki's influence in his in his movie style. You know, you can get Japanese animation porno now. Well, all, all, always, man. That they shit blows my mind that someone takes the time to do that. <laughs> it's well, probably because, pretty popular, uh, popular back then, back there. <laughs> well, because in Japan, they don't have this uh, Western concept that uh, animation or cartoons or comics are just for kids. You have uh, people on the Tokyo subway all the the middle-aged office employees are all all everybody's reading some kind of the uh, Japanese manga, and there you have Japanese manga of covering all kind of subjects and topics, and obviously the sex and very very adult themes are, are covered there too. And in places like China, serious lack of women. Like I think I think uh, in China it's something like there's 50 million more men than women. No, you think so? 
Yeah, dude. I just heard. I was just heard that shit the other day. Wow. Well, so now fifty the... million dudes that have zero chance of getting a mate. So now those are the kind of guys who are going to see really invest in the development of sex bots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or or just go gay. Or they just have to learn to share. Nothing wrong with sharing. <laughs> Big love. <laughs> No, man, they're they are now gaining so much money that they could easily, you know, buy themselves some wipe from some other country, you know, Malaysia or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And it's not exactly. I don't think it's like it used to be either, where you know you don't have daughters. You know what I mean? Because you're only allowed one kid. I think some of that shit's starting to loosen up too. With the middle class, medium, middle high class, yes. But hmm. with the lower class, I don't think so. Hmm. So, do you have any other Fortean uh, uh, stuff you're going to be posting anytime soon? Do we get any sneak peeks into your blogs? Sure. I mean, we're, we're talking about UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence. But we often forget that we have alien intelligences living right here in our own planet. And we have made very little effort in trying to communicate with them. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the dolphins. dolphins. Oh. Exactly. And <laughs> these, recent, <laughs> these recent news that uh, we now have learned that Rossi dolphins call each other by name, which is very, very impressive. I mean, the idea that if each one of them have their own whistle signature and they respond to it. So you read something like that and you start to wonder, does that mean that dolphins have a sense of individuality? To me, it like, definitely means that they're self-aware. No, I mean, do they have a concept of the ego? Do they, do they have a concept of... Uh, how how advanced is is their it really is their consciousness? Huh. Maybe they really are from uh, Atl Atlant. You know what they say they're from Atlantis. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So they long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> yeah, but the old the new age shit and uh, how people idealize them, and we also know that dolphins can be really motherfuckers who can rape <laughs> the, the females and can kill their offspring and all that. But what I really think is that uh, we have devoted so much energy and effort in trying to communicate with alien intelligence in, in some other planet. Maybe we should start with the goddamn dolphins. I mean, they are there. If I mean, nothing else, it's a good fucking training part. Exactly. And we at least know that we are uh, connected to them. I mean, they share our same uh, biology, our same DNA. I mean, that, uh, they developed uh, in a similar ecosystem. Well, not that similar since they live in the, in the sea. But now they, when think, you think about it, the sheer fact that we can't communicate with dolphins should tell us that we're nowhere near ready to be trying to communicate with other people from other planets. Yeah, exactly. And we also tell tells you something about the expectations of what of how an alien intelligence should behave you know we always always thinking okay so if the ufos are extraterrestrial vessels why haven't they fucking landed on the white house lawn already 
because that's why what we will do. I mean, we will go and go take me to your leader and all that because that's the way we think. <laughs> no, but you you see some uh, uh, an advanced intelligence like dolphins who really don't care about uh, creating civilizations or having a day job or, or uh, using uh, mach creating mach uh, complicated machines, but yet they are intelligent and mm -hmm. they have a very complex and very dynamic social structure. Probably not unlike we were, you know, maybe 100,000 years ago. Yeah, maybe even uh, less, less than, than that. that. Yeah, yeah the, some of the other news that I recently read was you always see all these uh, sociologists and all these evolutionary psychologists who keep telling us that uh, humans are warlike by nature, but the people that have studied uh, modern uh, hunter-gatherers societies, they have learned that these, uh, these social structures are very stable, are very peaceful, that hunter-gatherers very rarely aim enter into conflict with 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 the rival tribes so what what does that tell about our history because if you see the scope of human history from since we uh, we're still uh, roaming the plains of uh, africa to where we are now most of our history uh, we spent it as hunter gatherers until some motherfucker came with the idea of <laughs> of agriculture or something like that, you know, and they, like so, someone like Christopher Ryan said, well, that's how when things started to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually, we'll be talking to Michael Cremo, Cremo later on this episode, so I'm sure mm. he's going to have some uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, because he's the idea that humans have uh, lived in this planet for millions of years, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's been kind of an up and down and up and down thing with civil civilization. And yeah, and, and I'm not really against the possibility. I mean, if you see how easily uh, created things, things, uh, 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 products of culture how easily they break down and they dissolve. So the idea of a civilization that is that was millions of years old, how little trace of it would remain. It's yeah, not I, really I love that shit, shit man. That's, uh, one that, that's really why I got into ancient aliens. For me, it was always more of a, a an, an undiscovered past more than an alien thing for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've always wondered about how we evolved into different races. It, it seems like something's missing there as far as the timeline, like like how long it took us to evolve in different areas. And oh, the timeline is fucked for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem is that if you started to uh, speculate about how the different races uh, are examples of, I don't know, different alien races coming to this planet, that that kind of talk that that kind of speculation can easily devolve into uh justifying uh, justifying racism you know it might not take that long dude i don't know a, ge a few generations that's no it, i don't uh, i don't get it yeah but there's the some missing is, links there for me yeah but the problem is then you have people like I don't know, in the 1930s and the 1920s, you have people in Germany speculating about how their 
they were descendant of Aryan uh, demigods who lived in Hyperborea, and all the rest of the human races were inferiors who were descended from uh, from primates, hmm. and that's why it gave them the justification to enslave <laughs> the rest of humanity hmm. because they they felt superior to all all of them. Do you think there was some uh, legitimacy to their contact? Uh, you know how they talked about contact with other races and stuff, like extraterrestrial races? You yeah, think that the, actually channeling uh, with the beings in Aldebaran and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You think that was a big influence for them, really, when it came down to it? You are walking the line, buddy. <laughs> I really don't know. I I wrote about something like that uh, recently on the Intrepid blog. How uh, uh, coming so with a mental experiment, a mental uh, idea about uh, the Roswell shit, you know, how maybe uh, the Roswell event was some kind of a test, like uh, like a white elephant. You see how in in uh, the Kingdom of Siam. Uh, if the king was displeased with one of the courtesans, one of the nobles who was starting to become too rowdy or started to contest his power, the easiest method to get rid of him without a bloody confrontation was to uh, give a present of a white elephant. And the problem with the white elephant is that uh, uh, you can't use it for anything. It's like a big uh, goddamn... Uh, expensive uh, adornment uh, that you can't put you can't put to work and it it imagine imagine what a fucking elephant uh, eats every day so it was the easiest way to make someone uh, uh, become bankrupt so giving giving a to receive a white elephant was a both a great honor and a great curse huh. was something of a a parody and then i thought okay so what if the the aliens deliberately places the the well cons- uh, making the 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 hypothesis that the roswell event was indeed uh the crash of an extraterrestrial uh, vessel maybe it was deliberate and maybe it was something of a test, and maybe it became the white elephant of the American government. Because uh, imagine all the millions of dollars and all the time and all the effort that I tried to, they invested in trying to figure out how this, this goddamn thing works. Yeah. <laughs> no. So maybe when you you uh, b- getting back to the the speculation about uh, a possible contact between the Nazis and. Uh, alien intelligence maybe it was the same you know maybe maybe the aliens came to with Adolf Hitler saying okay here are the the plans for for a flying saucer good luck and Adolf Hitler being the idiot that he was he uh, uh, wasted all the precious resources of the war effort to try to uh, build a flying saucer and in the meantime he lost the war No, so maybe it was kind of a. Did you see the movie, or maybe you read the, the, the novel Sphere by Michael Crichton? I saw the movie. Yeah, it was good. Uh, then I don't think it was really that good. Uh, 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 at least not as good as the novel itself. Yeah, yeah. But well, something of a spoiler alert if, to to all the people listening. Uh, 
uh, if you want to skip ahead a few minutes, but the idea of the, the, the novel is that uh, a group of scientists find an extraterrestrial artifact that somehow allows them to manifest all their desires, all their thoughts. So imagine right now I want, I know if I, if right now I'm thirsty and, I, and I'm thinking about uh, having a beer and poof, the beer appears right in front of my eyes. That shit is happening literally right now. <laughs> <laughs> is that the one that's on the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, exactly. The sphere. It's a sphere. And you put your hands yeah. and you like you touch the sphere and it like and it grants you the shit. power. Yeah, you know, it grants you the power, yeah. I mean god like powers, you know. Yeah. Whatever you think about it, it it comes through both your greatest fantasies and all your most horrible nightmares. Imagine if you always have nightmares of I don't know, werewolves or vampires and a fucking vampire run the manifest Exactly, you know, some demon cloud clown that manifests right in front of your bedroom. You know, how do you get rid of that shit? When I first seen that movie, It, man, I was fucked up on clowns for a while. It floats. <laughs> but the ending was such a lame ending. Oh, yeah. If you watch any of those movies from back in the day nowadays, they're like super lame. Not many of them stand the test of time, like Pet Cemetery and shit. Ugh. But shit, back that to, shit'll still chill you to the bone. But getting back to the idea, maybe, maybe if some superior superior alien intelligence tried to put some test on us, you know, mm. they they put some uh, flashy uh, artifact in front of us, and instead of trying to share it, the the American government decided to try to keep it to themselves. And in doing so, they slowly uh, doomed themselves because now the American uh, the American government is in bankrupt. They, if they have alien technology, they really hasn't been of much use trying to solve their problems in the Middle East or trying to to, to save their economy. So, yeah, no, they should have started on that a long time ago. Yeah. So, so they ruined they ruined their chance of disclosure by not doing it at the beginning. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was... exactly, and wasting a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And now so, they're fucked. Something that could could have been a blessing became a curse, yeah. just like the white elephant. Yeah, now you can't tell. Huh. It's too late to tell. Well, you tell now you're that... an asshole. Exactly. You're an asshole. Why didn't you tell us before? No, but you don't have to tell, but you can... You can softly open the door for a few more generations, and then it'll just be okay. No. Say, so, you know, it wasn't us. It was just, you know these. No. Not it was even the, this dude's great grandfather held that shit secret. And just open the door a crack. That's it. You don't have to open it wide open. And maybe that's already happening. Maybe like the work from uh, Robbie Graham. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, you always hear all these stories that every ten years or so they make these uh, attempts to try to disclose, to try to test the waters to see if the people is ready, you know? Um, slowly and the, 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 like you say, the, the, the door starts to crack a bit uh, more open every time. Who knows? I mean, it hasn't, if the Roswell event really was uh, an, 
out of this world uh, uh, technology or whatever. That was what 1947. It has been 66 years. That's really not a long a long time ago. I mean, it's, it's a little more than two gener- human generations. But mm-hmm. no, I mean a drop of water, really. In, in evolutionary this, terms. In the big scale of things, yes. Mm. So maybe it takes 100 years to get acquainted with the idea that we are not alone. So maybe in 2047, uh, they will come clean and say, guess what? Yeah, maybe. I hope so. I hope I'm still alive for it. Yeah. You'll be well, alive forever, man. You'll be part of a Google mainframe in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> will I have a memory, though? <laughs> You'll have a memory of crunching data for the rest of your days. <laughs> When I was, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, I was really so desperate to know, to know the truth and uh, demanding the disclosure, like to all these uh, Stephen Bassett, uh, his minions. But now that I'm almost 40 years old, I really don't give a fuck. I really don't need disclosure anymore. I really don't even care where these things come from, you know, the, 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 the path, the the journey is the destination. Like uh, I totally agree with that. It. I totally agree with that. And I don't really care about disclosure, and you know, a capital D disclosure. What I care about is, is yeah. Here's Darren waving his arm at me here. But no, what I care about is just that the ridicule factor gets uh, gets removed, and that people are just open enough to talk about their experiences. Like that's that's my main thing. You know, you're a disclosure junkie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there will always be assholes making ridicule of things they don't understand. I mean, instead of getting mad at them, you know, have have, have compassion for them. Give them a hug. Jeez, have yeah. you been meditating lately? Or? <laughs> no, no. Because, like something I heard some time ago, they are on their own, on their own path. I mean, they are on their own journey of uh, awareness and it's different from yours yeah no i i totally get that yeah i just i just don't like uh the ridicule that's all i mean you know it doesn't have to be even if they're on their own journey and they don't want to open their minds up to other possibilities doesn't mean that uh people have to be ridiculed about it that's all and and just the acceptance that there's a genuine phenomenon like once that happens I think we'll be well on our way to uh, a different uh, level of consciousness here. Maybe. <laughs> Some fifth or, dimension shit. <laughs> or maybe it will be the first of many, many steps to take. You yeah. Know? yeah. So I guess uh, on that note, should we start wrapping it up? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Okay, RBJ. Well, uh well, of course, we can find you uh, at Red Pill Junkie on Twitter. We'll link to that in the show notes, as always. Uh, we'd like to thank you for coming on, and we can't uh, wait to talk to you again down the, down the line. Yeah, let's not wait so long next time. Yeah, like always, guys, it's been a pleasure, and let's uh, let's hope that the, the few people listening to this have, all, have also enjoyed it.
evolution of life on Earth seems to have been profoundly altered by collisions with such bodies. Asteroids. Okay, guys, uh, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. With us tonight, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, the well-known Mr. Uh, Michael Cremo. Um, with me, as always, is Graham, of course. How's it going tonight, Graham? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, Darren. Glad to be here. So uh, Michael Cremo is with us, and he's also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist. He's hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 93, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil world and shake up expect accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national TV shows in the U.S. or other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences, or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. Michael Cremo is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bhaktivedanta Institute. So after receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient Sanskrit writings of India known as the Vedas. In this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from the Eastern tradition. And Michael's got some recent books, some of uh, as Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, Divine Nature, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, Human Devolution, The Forbidden Archaeologist, and uh, his latest, My Science, My Religion. So, Michael, uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Good to be with you and all your listeners. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's a great book, by the way. Um, what, um, when you were writing it, what were, what were your main, what are the main elements for, for the people who haven't read it yet? Well, Today, most scientists believe that human beings like us first came into existence about 200,000 years ago or even less than that. They think before that time, there were no human beings like us on Earth. There were only more primitive ape-like human ancestors. However, the writings of different spiritual traditions tell us something different. They say that humans have always existed on, on Earth, going back, you know, all the way back to the very beginnings of the history of life. So that is information that's contained in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. It's also there in the Bible. It's, uh, it's, it's an idea that's somewhat different from what we are told by scientists in our scientific institutions and mm -hmm. in the education system. 
so I I wondered, well, well, what is the real status of this idea that humans had been here for very very long periods of time? And uh, you know, the the first place I looked was in the current textbooks of archaeology, but there you only find evidence that supports the current dominant Darwinian evolutionary theories of human origins, which say humans didn't exist more than one or two hundred thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. But I decided to look beyond the textbooks. I decided to look into the original scientific reports from the time of Darwin all the way up to the present. And I did eight years of research. And in the course of that research, I found hundreds of scientific reports of discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints going back much further than 200,000 years, going back many millions of years, Mm -hmm. even tens of millions of years. So I collected all those reports and put them in the book Forbidden Archaeology. So that's what that book is about. Mm Yeah, that was actually, that's one of my favorite books ever. Like, that's one of the books that first, and like, I think I seen a, a little documentary with the same title that when, when I was first kind of starting to explore, explore the other side of the people's different theories on history, I suppose, and what I was taught in school, that was one of the first, first things I stumbled upon, and I, it was great. Yeah, there was a documentary that came out shortly after the book was published. It was called The Mysterious Origins of Man. Yeah, that's Uh, the one, yeah. It was shown on NBC. It was hosted by Charlton Heston. It was produced by a man named Bill Cote. And Bill Cote had gotten a copy of my book, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, and he wanted to include some cases from the book in this documentary and you know, I told him uh, uh, about several cases that I thought were pretty interesting from Forbidden Archaeology. One of them was the California gold mine discoveries. You know, the, the, the 19th century gold was discovered in California and miners went out there to get the gold and they were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains at places like Table Mountain near Sonora in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And deep inside these tunnels, the miners found human bones and human artifacts and layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. So these discoveries were all collected and reported to the scientific world by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. Now Whitney is named after him. But they were extremely controversial discoveries, and many of the scientists of his time just couldn't accept that humans existed so far in the past. Uh, One of the scientists uh, who couldn't accept these discoveries was an anthropologist named William Holmes, who worked at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And he said if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, he wouldn't have reported (laughs) these discoveries. So uh, 
Dr. Holmes thought these things should just be forgotten, and basically that's what happened. But I knew that some of the artifacts from the California gold mines were in the collection of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. So I told Bill Cote, the producer of this documentary, The Mysterious Origins of Man, that you know, he should go to that museum. But when he went there, the museum officials refused to allow him to see the artifacts. They're not displayed to the public. Mm. Uh, but we were able to find some photographs that Dr. Whitney had taken in the 19th century. So he did have some images to show on that documentary that you saw. And it was a, a very controversial documentary, the scientific community in the United States was outraged that NBC had dared to show something. It was the first time that a major American television network had shown something that directly contradicted what students were being taught in schools all over the country. So uh, they uh, the scientists uh, wrote to the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and tried to get them to fine NBC millions of dollars for having shown the program. I'm happy to say the FCC didn't do that, but it just, I mean, you were mentioning yourself, Graham, that you saw, you remember seeing this documentary, and it, 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 uh, it was extremely controversial. How, how fucked up is that that they can take take this these discoveries and lock them away from the rest of the people? Like, who who are they to decide what we can see and what we can't? That just seems crazy to me. Well, it's something that we see in uh, a lot of different areas that uh, in different areas of government and different areas of science. There are gatekeepers who believe they have the right to decide what is evidence and what isn't evidence, what the public know should know and what it shouldn't know. That's just a, a fact of life in this world. However, it's also a fact that there are people and channels of communication that are able to get some of this knowledge out there for people to consider. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing you on a podcast, it must have been four years ago, four or five years ago now, and you were talking about, uh, I think it was Forbidden Archaeology, and it stuck with me ever since. And I just recently listened to Forbidden Archaeology on audio. It was great. And uh, it still surprises me how many cases and how much you've documented in that. Yeah, well, it, it would be one thing. You know, I mean, when I, when I started the research for Forbidden Archaeology, it was in 1984. That's when I actually started this research. And I thought, you know, I, I, you know, I just had a suspicion that if I started looking beyond the textbooks into the original scientific reports, I might find a few things <laughs> that showed humans had been around for a lot longer than were being told in the textbooks. So... I thought I might find a couple of things, and then I thought I might write some short little article or maybe a pamphlet or something, and then go on to something else. 
But as I started the research, I would find one case, it would lead to another case, I'd read a footnote in that report, it would lead to another report, until finally, you know, the, you know, I thought I might start out doing eight days of research, but the eight days turned into eight weeks, the eight weeks turned into eight months, the eight months turned into eight years, because one case just led to another. I mean, once you've got the thread, it, it just kind of keeps on going. Deeper down the rabbit so, hole. So uh, uh, I was a little surprised myself that it took so long. But eventually, I mean, that book, Forbidden Archaeology, is 900 pages long. So we're not just talking, if it was just a few cases, then maybe somehow you could overlook it or dismiss it. But if, if there are hundreds of cases like this, then you've got to start asking yourself what the real truth is. Mm -hmm. hmm. And then, in you, well, you're like, well, your new book, My Science, My Religion, has kind of started to take more of a, a spiritual look at things as well. Like, um, you found, uh, tell us about the uh, the paranormal research papers. Well, <clears throat> you know, I've always had a spiritual inspiration for my work. That's what got me questioning these things. Uh, you know, in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, I was reading these accounts of humans existing millions of years ago, so I thought, is there any evidence for it? And then I found there was, and published the book Forbidden Archaeology. And then, you know, that book, it contradicts the current theories of human origins. So my readers started to ask, okay, if you're rejecting the current Darwinian evolutionary theory of human origins, then what are you going to put in its place? So <clears throat> I wrote a book called Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory to answer that question. And in that book, the first thing I said was, before we even ask the question, where did human beings come from, we should first of all ask a question, what is a human being? And today, many scientists are going to say that a human being is just a machine made of molecules. That's all there is to it. But I think there's more to a human being than that. Uh, there is a subtle mind element associated with a human organism that can act on ordinary matter in ways that we cannot explain by our current laws of physics. And then beyond that, there is a conscious self that can exist apart from matter, apart from the body, apart from the brain. And there's some scientific evidence for that. So that's how I got into the, what's called the paranormal, scientific evidence for a subtle mind element that has abilities like telekinesis, uh, mind over matter types of abilities, and telepathy, uh, remote sensing, uh, remote viewing, and things like that, the ability to perceive things at a distance. Um, you know, I think there's a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. 
if you've got a dominant theory, then evidence that supports the dominant theory will pass through this knowledge filter very easily. But evidence that radically contradicts the dominant theory will get filtered out, which means we won't read about it in the textbooks. So that's true in terms of the archaeological evidence showing that humans have existed for many millions of years on Earth. It's also true for what we call evidence for the paranormal, evidence for a subtle mind element associated with the human organism that has some very unusual, we might call them paranormal powers. And one of these paranormal powers is mind over matter, the ability of the mind to operate on ordinary matter in very strange ways. Uh, there is a lot of scientific evidence for this, but it's been filtered out. Uh, for example, many physics students, when they first start studying physics in high school, they learn about the work of Marie and Pierre Curie. Ah, uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. These were husband and wife. They were husband and wife. They both got Nobel Prizes for their work in discovering radium and other radioactive elements early in the 20th century. That's what you'll find in the textbooks. What you won't find in the textbooks is that they were heavily involved in paranormal research. They were a part of a a group of scientists that were investigating paranormal phenomenon in Paris early in the 20th century. Uh, the Curies and the rest of the group were conducting experiments with mediums. Now, mediums are people that have some of these paranormal powers. So, uh, one of the mediums they were conducting experiments with was an Italian woman named Eusepia Palladina. And this woman had mind over matter abilities, telekinesis. Uh, on one occasion, they had her in a laboratory in Paris. And in the presence of this woman, a large table was floating in the middle of the air. And Pierre Curie, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, and Marie Curie, his wife, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, determined that these things were real. They were actually happening. And the entire group of scientists signed documents saying that it was happening. But you're not going to read about that in the physics textbooks today. And similarly, there are also uh, scientific studies that show that there is a conscious self that can exist separate from the brain. I mean, many scientists today think, well, consciousness is just produced by chemicals interacting in the brain. And when the chemicals stop interacting at the time of death, there's no more consciousness. But uh, paranormal researchers have shown that there is a conscious self that can exist apart from the body, apart from the brain, apart from matter. So consciousness has its own independent existence. 
And you know, this is shown by medical studies of near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences, as they're sometimes called. You know, there are times when a person should be completely unconscious, like during a heart attack. The heart stops beating, blood stops flowing to the brain, medical instruments show that the brain waves stop. At a moment like that, a person should be completely unconscious, yet many medical doctors have studied this, and uh, they've shown that there are some people who, when a heart attack, for example, happens, they report separating from their bodies, and they are able to look down and see what the doctors and nurses are doing to revive them. And Groups of doctors in many different countries have studied this phenomenon and they've determined it's real. The people aren't just making up stories. So there, there is a whole body of paranormal research that Seems, did the tends cure, to show we're, we're something more than just machines made of matter. Yeah. It seems like that's coming uh, out more and more, even in the last five years, the, the near-death experience and out-of-body experience uh, research. Yeah, it's, it's, it started uh, several decades ago, and it's continued up to the present, present time. There's more and more such research coming out. Do you think it's opened up at all since you started and in, in, you know started looking at all this in back in the eighties? Has it changed quite a bit? Yeah, I, I I think it has, but you know the opposition to these things is still there. But among the general public, you know, there have been Gallup surveys done, you know, showing. I mean, one showed, you know, say on this question of human origins you know you know have humans been here since the beginning or did they evolve from apes you know about 80 percent of the american people do not accept the darwinian theory of human evolution as it's taught by its supporters in the education system you know they they believe either humans were manifested by God in the very beginning. Now, some people may have a difference about when it was. You know, some people would say, you know, there are young earth creationists who would say 10,000 years ago or less, or others like myself who would say humans have been here for millions of years, but whatever it is, it's since the beginning. Uh, we might disagree about when the beginning exactly was, but... Uh, humans have been here since the beginning and there's evidence for that and that's a position that a majority of American people accept also there have been Gallup surveys done showing that big percentages of the American population have had paranormal experiences of one kind or another so in terms of the ordinary people, I think increasing numbers of people are accepting these kinds of things. And even in the media, uh, there have 
they become more open to having documentaries come out about paranormal phenomenon, evidence for extreme human antiquity, and things like that. As I, you know, you know, back when I first started this kind of work, you know, when that documentary Mysterious Origins of Man came out on NBC in uh, 1996, there was an organized attempt by the scientific community to punish NBC for having shown that documentary and to try to stop them from showing it again. But now, I mean, there's just so many television outlets. Yeah, and of course, you know, the on internet. cable TV and the internet that it's become a little more difficult for them to control. So. So I think there there is progress, but uh, the opposition to these things is still pretty firmly entrenched in the education system, which yeah, I, I think is something that needs to change. Right at the present moment, the supporters of the current theories have a government-enforced monopoly in the tax-supported schools in this country and most countries in the world. So I, I don't think uh, that that's right, that one group should be able to take tax money from all the people and use it to impose their idea on everyone, even when those people may have different ideas. So Yeah, I think that's one thing. So I'd like to see a little diversity in uh, the education system. That would be a step forward. Yeah, I think that's one thing a lot of people don't really realize is they wonder why that you know they think the, they wonder why if you know this if this ancient archaeology stuff is real how come more people aren't aren't talking about it? I don't think they realize how much of a role like money and funding and things like that pl play in the, this research because I'd imagine like if you want to research and write papers on things like this you're not you're doing a lot of it out of pocket I would imagine. Yes, that's that's true. So, um, and it's also just a, a fact that the supporters of the current theory, I mean, I'm able to present papers at scientific conferences, and, you know, so there is opposition within this, the broader scientific world to the current theories, but the supporters of current theories are more numerous and they've been able to influence government to give them a monopoly in the education system so that only their ideas can be taught. So in a country that considers itself you know, democratic, I, I don't think that's a, a good idea that <clears throat> you give a majority a monopoly. It's like saying, okay, uh, most of the people in this country, you know, believe in a certain religion. So only that religion could be taught in the tax-supported education system, or only the views of the majority political party can be presented, and no other views. It, it, it's like uh, it's it's just not really such a good thing. But but in terms of the scientific theories, that's the way it is now. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think it's more of an uh, like an ego thing or like like a cover up thing? Like, do you, is it that well, people just don't want to be wrong? Is like, is it something that could be ter- kind of? Is it going to evolve over generations? As some of these these people who have something to lose start dying off, for lack of a better term. Well, I think there's a lot of different elements to this, what I call process of knowledge filtration. And you've mentioned some of them. I mean, one, one factor is it's just human nature. You know, for example, if I love somebody and somebody tells me something bad about the person I love, I don't want to believe it. I may even become angry at the person who tells me. You know, so today many scientists are very much in love with their current theories and when they hear something that goes against it it's 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 like uh, very difficult for them to accept so and i think another reason is it's it's just uh it shows the effectiveness of the system they have in place now. Like, if you're going to become a scientist, you have to go through the formal education system, through high school, get accepted to a college, go through your undergraduate work, and then your graduate work. And right now, in the education system, by practically speaking, by law, only the dominant ideas can be taught. Although there are alternatives, intelligent design, creation, uh, yeah, but none of those ideas can be taught in the education system. Only the current dominant theories, like the Darwinian evolutionary theory of human origins, can be taught. So that has the effect of delegitimizing the alternatives in the minds of the students. Yeah, they know if I'm going to get my PhD, I can't talk about this other stuff. I've got to go along, you know, follow the party line, or else I'm not going to get my PhD. I'm not going to get my position as a scientist or a, a research grant or whatever. So. I think until the monopoly the supporters of the current theories have and the education system is broken, until the government starts allowing some diversity of opinion in the education system, it's going to be very difficult to change things. And a lot of these scientists, they don't think that they're suppressing true knowledge, which if people knew would cause them to disbelieve in the mainstream theories. And when they hear about this paranormal evidence or evidence for extreme human antiquity, they just think something's got to be wrong with it. I don't know exactly what. I'm sure if one of my specialist colleagues looked into this, he'd be able to tell me exactly what's wrong with it. But they just think they're being responsible scientists in many cases. So in saying uh, that, are we on the they, are we on the cusp of uh, a paradigm shift, so to speak, in in that kind I of thinking? I think so. I think so because when you have a situation like this, when big majorities of the general public have ideas that are different from 
the ones the scientists are promoting in the education system using their tax money to do it, I don't think that's a very stable situation. I mean, I think uh, eventually people are going to wake up and say, why am I giving these people millions and billions of dollars in tax money so they can promote ideas that I don't accept? I think eventually people are going to figure that out. But now there's so many other problems, so many wars, economic crises and stuff going on. People aren't able to focus on that. But I think if we can get to a position eventually where some of these bigger problems die down, then people may be able to give some attention to what's going on with uh, these scientists taking tax money from them and using that tax money to impose their ideas on them. When surveys have shown that people actually have different ideas, and even within the scientific world there are different ideas. So I, I, I think eventually it's going to have to, you know, the monopoly that these people have in the education system is going to be ended. Yeah. And people will actually be able to consider different ideas and make up their own minds about them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It's only a matter of time before it, before it continues to Yeah, so it's, it's not a, right now they have their system, but it's not I don't think it's a very stable situation for them. It's going to have to end at some point. So sticking along that same vein there, I've I've always been fascinated myself on that that place where science and spirituality meet. Um how, how have the scientists reacted to that integration that you, you've, you've put forward here of science and spirit? Well, there are different reactions uh, because actually the scientific world is not monolithic. There are some scientists who are very much opposed to the kind of thing that I'm doing. I, you know, I call them the fundamentalist materialist. And it's more or less uh, their commitment to purely materialistic explanations of human origins and the human nature. You know, they try to explain everything in terms of combinations of matter. They don't want to bring in anything about some higher intelligence being involved or some non-material principles like uh, the subtle mind element or consciousness that can exist apart from matter. They don't want to bring in anything like that. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a question of, I mean, if you rule all those things out, then you can do that, but you're not going to have a complete explanation of reality. You know, you're going to have a very limited sort of science. So, so, as I said, there's one group of scientists that's very much opposed, and they wind up with a na very narrow, restricted, incomplete scientific picture of reality. And I think there's, not I think, I know, there are other scientists 
within the scientific community who are open to new ideas and bringing in new principles and considering things uh, like intelligent agency. And, you know, in, in other words, everything isn't just happening by blind material laws. So, so it's scientists in that category who have allowed me to make presentations at major international scientific conferences who have invited me to speak at universities around the world. So there is some, there is some diversity within the scientific community at, at large. So my latest book, My Science, My Religion, deals with these topics, how I've personally integrated my spirituality and my science, and what the reaction to that has been you know, in you know, the scientific world. Like I, I've seen you on a few few episodes of the the TV show Ancient Aliens, and and you know it's hard to deny that the show brings a lot of attention to these kind of uh, these different off mainstream theories, I suppose. But um, do you think those? Do you think shows like that overall? Like I mean, you, some of that stuff's pretty hard to to get along with. Do you think overall they're they're doing more harm than good with some of the crazier episodes that they have, or do you think just any attention is is better than no attention? Well, uh, I'll give you my honest answer. I think that overall the series has brought some things to the public attention that are good. Uh, I've participated in the series. You know, that Ancient Alien series has been going on for a few years now. I have appeared in about 10 different episodes. Yeah, I've seen everyone. Of, yeah. of, of that series. And I don't agree with everything that's presented in the series, but I think in general, it has opened the minds of people to the idea that we're not alone in the universe. And you know, I've tried to make my specific contribution. Now, I, you know, when they interview you for a series like this, 
you know, they don't put on everything that you say. So I may wish they would have put on more of what I had to say, but, you know, I'm not the producer of of the uh, the series. But I think overall it has been a positive contribution, even though I don't agree with everything that's in that's been presented on on the on the series. Yeah, I guess anything that gets people asking questions, right? Questioning questioning the norm or the mainstream. I think at this point in time, it's helpful. So because can you... I think this 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 has been one area in which a lot of knowledge filtration has been going on. The idea that we're not alone in the universe. Yeah, I was really surprised when when my book Forbidden Archaeology first came out. I started getting invited to speak at UFO conferences, even though my work had nothing to do on a superficial level with UFOs. I think the reason they invited me to speak at UFO conferences about forbidden archaeology, which is kind of stones and bones, archaeological evidence, is that I was talking about knowledge filtration, Uh, how evidence just gets filtered out of the education system and the mainstream scientific channels. So I was demonstrating how it was happening in archaeology and people in that field, the UFO extraterrestrial field, could see how it was happening in their field of research as well. So I guess that's why they initially invited me to speak at at some UFO conferences. Because so I think there is a lot of evidence that's been reported by very responsible researchers and observers, military pilots, scientists, airline pilots, and others showing that we have been visited by extraterrestrial beings with some type who are operating in some cases some type of vehicle or craft that go beyond the capabilities that we have so i think that's another aspect of changing our whole picture of reality, understanding, well, we're not alone in the cosmos. What Do you, do you give any credence to theories like uh, different people like David Wilcox have brought forward about, um, I don't know, he had different theories about almost like glitches in the matrix or information, you know, for these fossils to somehow sink below... I believe there is one case he mentioned specifically about the, the, the fossils found open under the piece of unbroken slate in the, in America somewhere. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, uh, I mean, normally, you know, I don't talk about, you know, the other researchers in the alternative science field because I figure people can 
listen to me or read my things and then read the works of others and, and listen make to what they decisions. say and make up their own minds. But, yeah, that's fair enough. You know, if, if uh, you know, somebody asks me a question, well, I have to say, you know, I, I'm not 100% familiar with the exact thing that you're talking about, but uh, uh, I tend, when I, when I wrote the book Forbidden Archaeology, I just presented the evidence, and the, the case I think you're talking about is a case that was reported in a scientific journal called The Geologist in the year 1862. It was a report that a human skeleton had been found 90 feet below the surface of the ground in McCoupin County in the state of Illinois, and according to the report, above the skeleton was an unbroken layer of slate rock which means that, you know, it's, it's not something, it's not that the skeleton had been at some higher level and had come down through some crack or something to where it was found. So, uh, so according to geologists of the state of Illinois, the layer below the slate rock, the one in which the skeleton was found, is about 300 million years old. So that's really quite extraordinary to have a human skeleton and layers of rock 300 million years old. The current idea, the one that's being taught in the schools now, is that there's no humans before 200,000 years ago. So in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, I reported that case and many other cases, but I didn't in forbidden archaeology offer any explanation for those cases. You just put forward the evidence. I just put forward the evidence because I wanted people to be free to offer their own explanations for these things. I offered my explanation, but in another book, you know, later. So, uh, because I wanted people to be free to think about, well, how do you explain this evidence? So some people uh, explain it, well, maybe we could have a new theory of evolution where the human beings evolve earlier, or maybe we could have extraterrestrial humans coming to Earth millions of years ago and dying and leaving their bones, or time travelers. Maybe this is an idea, something like David Wilcox is proposing. And I'm happy that people think about these things and try to come up with explanations for them that make sense to them. I mean, the the explanation that I favor is there were human beings like us 300 million years ago on Earth, and they've been continuously on Earth since the very beginnings of the history of life here, and some of the remains we found, and this is one case. So that's my explanation. But I'm happy that David Wilcox is thinking about how to explain this in his way, or that some other researcher is trying to think about it and explain it in their way. And I'll just leave it up to the people out there to decide each individually what explanation makes best sense to them. 
do you think technology will ever play a role in, in helping us unlock some things here in the in the next couple of decades? Uh, technology can be helpful. I think that that's true. I don't know. What exactly do you have in mind when you talk about technology? Well, just like uh, not only computer intelligence being able to help us along, but even like being able to, you know, really check out the bottoms of the oceans and the bottoms of the seas and seeing just how many cities are actually down there. And, you know, it seems like nowadays they're finding a new one every couple of weeks, some city. And, you know, the last time that that area land was underwater was 60,000 years ago. And there's, these are cities. So we're talking about actual yeah, a lot of people these days are using Google Earth to do this kind of research, but I think it has to be checked out. I mean, a lot of people have you know, detected using Google Earth, you know, satellite pictures and underwater scans and things like that to detect what looks like to them remains of cities but i think you've still got to go and ultimately check it out with you know humans ultimately i think yeah so there's so many questions i have for you i want to talk about like archaeology in india but also this uh this plant antiquity of plants like you have this fascinating study of uh anomalous fossil evidence for the extreme antiquity of plants well, yeah, that I mean, I mean, I focused on evidence for the human species existing uh, before most scientists now think possible, and that has taken me years and years and years. I mean, but but people ask me, well, what about other species? You know, different plants and animals have they also been around for longer than most scientists now accept? Now. I mean, there are millions of species, and I can't investigate them all. You know, I think there's a lot of research for a lot of people to do. But, uh, and, and I've kind of focused on the human species. So uh, that's uh, something. Uh, sorry I didn't turn off this that's earlier. Okay. But, but, uh, uh, it took me, you know, eight years to do the research for forbidden archaeology, but I just did some preliminary research on plants. I mean, most, you know, there are different kinds of plants. They, one of the major groups is the angiosperms, which is the flowering plants. And by flowering plants, we don't just mean roses and lilies and things like that. Most of the plants that we use for food are from the flowering plant family. Wheat, you know, the grains that we eat, that's from the flowering plant family. Uh, you know, apples, oranges, all of those things, those orange trees, apple trees, most of the fruit trees are from the flowering plant family, the vegetables, potatoes, cabbages, all that. Those are all from the flowering plant family, which is called scientifically the angiosperms. So most scientists think, well, the angiosperms, the flowering plants, came into existence about 100 million years ago, 
maybe a little bit before that. So they think the very first plants, land plants, came into existence between 400 and 500 million years ago. And before that, you know, they think there was just seaweed in the ocean. And before that, you know, they think there, there weren't any developed plants. There were just algae, you know, single-celled plants. So uh, that's the, what you read in the textbooks. But I said, okay, let me look into it. So I found an interesting report from, and this is published in peer-reviewed scientific literature from the mid-20th century, from the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. There were uh, botanists in India, paleobotanists. Those are the scientists who study ancient plants. They study the fossils of ancient plants. And uh, they were in a salt mine about a mile under the ground in the Salt Range Mountains in what's now Pakistan. It was part of India at that time. And they uh, found in some deposits a mile deep under the ground fossil remains of flowering plants. So this was really quite extraordinary because they were found in uh, formations, geological formations over 600 million years old. Now like the standard theory is the flowering plants came into existence about a hundred million years ago, maybe a little bit more, but not much. Around 600 million years ago, they think there should have been no plants at all on land, only some very primitive things floating around in the in the oceans. So, uh, and that paper that I wrote about this case is found in my latest book, My Science, My Religion. I presented a paper about it at a science conference a few years ago. So, it, and the, the reason I looked into that, as I said, was because people ask me, well, okay, maybe humans have been around a lot longer, but what about other types of living things? Have they also been around? A lot longer, and I think the answer is yes. Do you think it's like a, a, a cyclical thing then? Like civilization has arose and and just kind of eroded before, but but as a species, we've we've pushed on and kind of pushed ourselves back up to the height of civilization and come down again. Or do you think civilization is kind of a, a newer thing? No, I think you're right. Uh, time does go in cycles and. In the course of those vast cycles of time, human civilizations have risen and fallen many times. The ancient Greeks and Romans believed that. Uh, in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, we find such accounts that time goes in vast cycles and there are periodic catastrophes, devastations that wipe out uh, life and human life. and and then the the earth gets repopulated from 
some higher level of reality. It's like, I mean, these days, you know, some people, they talk about cloud computing. And cloud computing means that you have all your files and programs not on your device, you know, your laptop computer or your PC or your smartphone or whatever. Your actual programs and files reside on some server, other server. They call it the cloud. And that means if something happens, like if your computer gets destroyed or your smartphone gets destroyed, well, you can get another one and download all your files and programs from the cloud. So I think our Earth is sort of like that. There are periodic devastations after which it gets repopulated from higher levels of reality. What do you think about uh, the idea that uh, ancient man and uh, ancient uh, plants um, kind of work together to evolve language and things like that, like uh, hallucinogens or mushrooms? Like it, it, it's almost inevitable that ancient man would have tried to eat them. Do you have any ideas about that, or is that too far out well, there? Well, I think there have always been all kinds of people and all kinds of of states of consciousness. I mean, some people, they're just fine with their ordinary state of consciousness. And if they want to develop some higher level of consciousness, they do it either through education or the practice of some type of spiritual discipline, some type of contemplation or prayer or yoga or meditation or whatever. But there have always been those who've tried to take you know, some shortcuts, you know, by using, you know, some kind of uh, intoxication. So, uh, so I think that's always been there throughout all of human history, and everybody's just got to make their own choice. I personally prefer, if I'm going to try to raise my consciousness to some higher level, I prefer to do it by some technique of either education or meditation or something like that, rather than relying on some chemical stimulant. Mm -hmm. Speaking of meditation... Although, but that, those are decisions everybody has to make, however. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, at a full moon meditation three nights ago, and um, it's a group meditation. The first time I've been to this specific group, it was very nice meditation. And... Uh, the intuitive that led it, she went around and did a little sort of card reading with each of us. And uh, it's funny, she mentioned to me that I should pay attention to Ayurvedic healing and um, that that's going to be coming up for me in the next little while. And I noticed you've done a lot of that. Uh, you've studied some of the Sanskrit writings as the Vedas and all that. Yeah, they have, I mean, they're different... Uh divisions of Vedic literature. Veda is a Sanskrit word. It means knowledge. Mm -hmm. So some of it deals with history. That's kind of what I focused on, the historical writings, the, the actual history of the human species, the where it came from, and all yeah. that. Yeah. And then, but then there's a, a, a division of the Vedas called the Ayurveda, means the Veda that has to do with health and mm -hmm. life. So there's a whole medical science, and it's based on the idea that you know, the human organism, it has 
some vital energies to it that aren't recognized by modern science, different vital forces, different types of airs, uh, different types of subtle mental energies and intellectual energies that are infused into the human form. And then there's the actual self, it's called the Atma, that is pure consciousness, it's non-material. So a real medical science will understand the relationship between uh, body, mind, and spirit. And the Ayurveda is like that. It, 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 it relies on those types of understandings, and it's, it's a whole science. It's, and, then, and then there's uh, a Veda that deals with military science, and then a Veda that deals with politics, and a Veda that deals with... So there's a lot of knowledge there, but ultimately uh, the ultimate knowledge is the spiritual knowledge of freeing the conscious self from its contact with matter, which causes us to have to accept vehicles or bodies made of matter that are subject to birth, death, old age, and disease in a cycle of reincarnation. Yeah, the Vedas get into the different uh, the different ages too, don't they? Like the Golden Age and and uh, the yeah. Yugas and the Manavantras and all that. Yes, uh, you know, many ancient civilizations had a cyclical concept of time. You know, the Mayan people of Central America, the ancient Greeks and Romans. So the people in ancient India, they also had a cyclical concept of time and there are different units of cyclical time there's the yuga cycle which is a cycle that lasts for four million years roughly and then there's a cycle of manvantars each one lasts about 300 million years and then there's a cycle of kalpas which lasts about four billion years so there's sort of cycles within cycles within cycles but what I got out of it was that there have been humans in all of these different cycles of time. Yeah, and they were actually living to be different lifespans and different... different. Yeah, uh, at, at different points in the time cycles, people live for longer periods. They may have been of larger size than they are today. So, yeah, that, that kind of information can be found in... Uh, the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, and also in other uh, writings as well. For example, in the Bible, it says that in ancient times, people were bigger, and they lived for longer periods of time. Yeah, I think Noah was years. over 900, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, so that kind of information we find across a lot of spiritual traditions, and I think there's truth to it. Um, so what about the archaeology in India then? That You wrote some papers about that, sticking with India for a bit. Well, that has to do with the history of archaeology in India, because you know, many people think that archaeology in India began when Western European scientists started going there 
three or four hundred years ago and digging things up. But uh, what I've shown is that there was actually a an indigenous archaeological tradition there that the people of India had their own archaeological tradition and this is also true in other cultures around the world but in India the way it manifested there might be some saint or mystic who would have a dream that and in the dream it would be revealed to him that some sacred object or sacred image was buried nearby and then he would go to that place and dig and find it hmm. and then uh, build a temple or monument to commemorate the place so uh, so I've written some papers about that as well that uh, western scientific archaeology is not the only archaeology there are indigenous archaeologies and one of them would be the archaeology that these people in India were doing before, you know, the Western archaeologists came came there. Have you come across anything uh, like the ancient Vimanas or anything like that in any of your, your research into the ancient texts? Yes. Uh, and I've talked about that in some of the episodes of the series Ancient Aliens, which one of the things I tried to bring to that series was knowledge of spacecraft and aircraft reported in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. They were called Vimanas. Yeah, that's the Sanskrit word for it. And uh, there are elaborate descriptions given of these spacecraft and these texts that were written down thousands of years ago. I mean, our normal conception is that aircraft were first invented in the early 20th century, you know, and then gradually we developed missiles and things like spacecraft. But these ancient writings talk about such things happening millions of years ago so it's really quite amazing so getting back to your 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 latest book my science and my religion um why did you call it that well <clears throat> many people today think that the two things should be kept completely separate uh you know that science and religion are completely two completely separate things so I've shown that they can be integrated personally. But, you know, there are different kinds of science and there are different kinds of religion. So I wanted to talk specifically about my science, my religion. And by my religion, I mean the inspiration I've gotten from the ancient Sanskrit writings of India from that spiritual tradition, which talk about very ancient human populations existing on Earth, about a conscious self that can exist apart from matter and all things like that. And so that's what I mean by my religion and by my science. I mean the scientific evidence that 
supports those things. The archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity showing that humans did exist millions of years ago, as these religious texts say. The scientific evidence showing that there is a conscious self that can exist apart from matter, as these religious texts say. So I wanted to talk about my science, my religion, not just general ideas about science and general ideas about religion. Well, it's a great read, and uh, I hope uh, I encourage all of our listeners to, to pick it up. Um, there's actually a link on the, on the website, grammerica.ca, where, where people can go and buy your book right from there and uh, support the show at the same time. Uh, so, Michael, we're, we're kind of getting short on time. Before we let you go, uh, we'd like to give you the opportunity to, uh, to talk about maybe what's coming up next or anything you, you kind of want to plug. And, of course, we're going to link to all this in the show notes as well. Okay, well, the next event that's coming up for me is I'll be appearing at a conference called Contact in the Desert, which is being held at the Joshua Tree Resort or Retreat in Southern California. Is that Greer's thing? And and that is, I'm going to be talking there about Vimanas and extraterrestrials as they're described in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. A lot of uh, researchers in the UFO extraterrestrial field, including many of the speakers who appeared on the Ancient Aliens series, will be at this event called Contact in the Desert. So that's August uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th. And I'm uh, also available in my uh, website, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com, and my Facebook page, Michael Cremo, it's really me, my public figure page on Facebook. And I'm also at Michael Cremo on Twitter. So I, I hope some of your... Listeners will check out my books and my websites. And it's been a pleasure to be with you, Darren and Graham, on Grime America. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. We'll make sure we link into to everything in the show notes. And uh, and we wish you luck in all, in all your endeavors. Uh, we truly enjoyed the book. I've, I've enjoyed all your stuff. And uh, you've truly uh, you've truly kind of brought a, brought a lot of evidence forward that, that not a lot of people are talking about and opened a lot of minds in the process. Well, we're all trying to do our part. <laughs> you know, the people like you who are putting all this information out, researchers like me, your listeners who are interested in these things, we're all trying to do our part. Well, that was our chat with Michael Cremo and his new book, uh, My Science, My Religion. Yeah, what a what a great guy, and he was he was willing to take it uh, take it into some other areas as well. He he wasn't shy to talk about pretty well anything. Yeah, I feel like we kind of took him down a few tangents there. Yeah, but he took it in stride. Yeah, it was it was good. I appreciate that. So um, we got uh, Grant Cameron's episode will be out in a few days. Yeah, we'll have that out a couple days and after that's you a guys doozy. hear this one. 
Yeah, that one's uh, probably even a little longer than this one, and that <laughs> was just all. And we, of course, we had Red Pill Junkie on at the beginning of this one. That helped out. And uh, as always, uh, it seems like someone doesn't want us talking to RPJ sometimes. Yeah, there's some gremlins coming up uh, during certain content, that's for sure. Yeah, especially, it's, what was it, cattle mutilations that was causing the biggest problems? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's whenever black helicopters are involved, I don't know. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, hopefully that shit stops, but uh, we got it We got it all sorted out in the end anyway. I think everything turned out pretty good. Um, I think we're going to keep it fairly short and sweet since the episode ran uh, quite a bit longer than usual, which seems to be turning into a trend. Um, but, of course, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always get a hold of us at feedback at grimerica.ca. Or Graham. That's G-R-A-H-A-M at Grimerica.com. And you can always get a hold of us on Twitter. It's uh, at Grimerica. And on uh, Facebook, uh, just search Grimerica and you'll find us there. So a big thanks to Red Pill Junkie and Michael Cremo. Again, hopefully we'll talk to those two guys uh, soon. And uh, thanks to you, Darren. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time, and uh, we'll be coming back real soon. As always, you'll find uh, the links to all this shit and uh, all the music you heard in this episode as well in the show notes. So uh, I think that's about it, guys. We'll uh, see you next time.
Thank you.